This is the fourth talk in a series of talks on the seven virtues, titled Patience, recorded February 25th, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, so this is going to be the fourth in our series of talks of the seven virtues, which are courage, humility, justice, patience, gratitude, mercy, and joy. And so the fourth one is patience. And uh, first, let's try and get some idea what the nature of patience is. Patience is hailed in all the traditions as a great virtue. In Buddhism, as I said earlier, it's the third of six paramitas. Six paramitas are six spiritual perfections the Bodhisattva tries to practice. They include things like ethics and right concentration and uh, effort and wisdom. I've forgotten. It's four, five. Anyway, patience is one of those, so it's up there. It's big. Uh, Catherine of Siena, who is, of course, a Christian mystic, uh, says this about patience. All of the virtues can at times simulate perfection when they are really imperfect, but they cannot deceive patience. For if this gentle patience, the very heart of charity, is present in the soul, she knows that all the virtues are alive and perfect. But if she is absent, it is clear that all the virtues are imperfect. It's an interesting way to look at uh, patience, that it's sort of a barometer, that here you are going along thinking that you're um, doing well in terms of practicing virtues and so forth, and you find yourself getting impatient. She's saying they're all sort of connected together. So if you find yourself getting impatient, it's telling you something. Uh, Ananda Moyamai, who's a great uh, Hindu mystic of this century, praises patience uh, this way. She says, anchored in patience, enduring everything, Abide by his name and live joyously. That's one of my favorites. But this idea of anchor being anchored in patience, that somehow patience is fundamental on a spiritual path. And we don't have to actually uh, say too much about the nature of patience. It's one of the virtues that is still recognized in our society today. Uh, a lot of the other ones aren't. And uh, it's still recognized because it's so obvious that it causes suffering. And so, uh, you know, we see somebody who's very impatient, we realize that they're suffering, and they're usually generating a lot of suffering around them. So, you know, kids always tell, I mean, parents always tell their kids, you know, be patient, be patient. <laughs> we tell each other that, and we can recognize impatience, and we can recognize that it is a source of suffering quite easily. Why, though? Why, why is... Uh, Impatience. Why does impatience cause suffering? What does it reflect? It's really a sign that in somehow we're in conflict with reality, with what's actually going on. Impatience is, uh, has this uh, sense of restlessness, of wanting to uh, move away from whatever's happening now, whatever's happening this moment, uh, to escape some uh, situation, perhaps, some uh, person that we have to deal with. Uh, something's going on and we're anxious to move on, leave this moment, escape from this moment and go on to something else. But we can't ever really do that. This moment is always this moment. It's always here. And we can't ever really escape reality. So when there's that tendency, that desire to escape reality, it puts us into conflict with reality. And really all suffering is about that. It's our being in conflict with reality. Sometimes it's conflict with ourselves, by the way, the reality of ourselves. So sometimes in a, in a short-term sense, we can uh, relieve impatience by simply leaving. If you're getting impatient with my talk here, you can just get up the, and walk out the door. Uh, sometimes we can uh, uh, alleviate it by leaving a, uh, a relationship, let's say, that we're very impatient with, or a job or whatever. But that is really not a permanent solution. First of all, often we can't leave. And uh, even if we do leave, the, in the nature of things, we're going to run into another situation, another person, uh, another set of circumstances that is going to cause us to become impatient again. So uh, what can we do about impatience? Well, from a spiritual point of view, as always, the solution lies within us. It doesn't lie in the world out there. 
that the impatience arises in us, and if we are ever going to put an end to impatience and the suffering that impatience is a sign of and that generates, uh, we have to look inside. And really cultivating patience, the first thing about it is this accepting of reality, learning to accept what's going on. And there's a lot of confusion in our culture when you talk about accepting reality, and this is not to be confused with a sense of resignation about reality, where you say, well, the world's just a terrible place, and you just have to resign yourself to it, and so forth. The reality we're talking about is the moment, the absolute now. What is happening right now? If something is happening right now, that cannot be avoided. It's also changing, and that's part of the reality. So you can participate in the change, wisely and skillfully, we hope, but the first thing you have to accept, what is actually going on? So, for instance, let's say there was a child choking to death right in front of us. If your reaction is horror and push that away, you may actually lose the split seconds you need to accept the fact that a child is choking to death in front of you and be able to do something about it. You might not be able to do something about it. But usually when we're confronted with dramatic situations like that, our instinct is to say, oh my God, no. It takes a moment for that reaction to unfold, or that reaction separates you from that moment. So when we talk about accepting reality, we're not talking about accepting the injustices of the world or saying, I can't change my life. The whole, uh, the whole hope of a spiritual path is you can transform your life. And in so doing, transform the world in small ways, starting with the circle around you, but you know, rippling out. So let's not confuse acceptance with resignation. Acceptance means what is happening here, facing that reality instantly. Realizing you're you're part of that. You are that reality. So uh, when we can do this to accept the reality that's happening, this is really the first step to enjoying reality. Enjoying reality in a non-dual way. In other words, enjoying the... uh, puking cat, as well as the purring cat, to understand that whatever arises uh, is actually uh, something fundamentally to be enjoyed. That doesn't mean that you won't have more superficial reactions uh, of a desire and aversion and so forth, but that life itself as a whole is good and to be enjoyed. And if you continue to practice patience, and you learn to accept reality, and then you start to, uh, you will start to uh, learn to enjoy it. But ultimately, the fruit of the practice of uh, patience, of cultivating patience, is a peace. Being at peace with yourself and being at peace with the world. An inner peace. An inner peace, by the way, that will be there even when there's outer conflict. And that's uh, another thing that people confuse a lot. They think that if there's any sort of uh, outer conflict, or if there is any sort of outer conflict, it disturbs their inner peace. But it is truly possible to be peaceful even if you are in the midst of a war, have that inner peace. That's kind of mysterious. Uh, That's why um, I think it was Paul who called it the peace that passes all understanding. It's not a peace that you arrive at at some intellectual understanding. It's a piece that you discover. And patience is the path to that discovery, the virtue that most directly uh, shows you this possibility. So from a spiritual point of view, patience is a virtue that's associated with the fourth stage of a spiritual path. Not that we shouldn't be trying to practice all the virtues all the time, but uh, when we get to the fourth stage, this... um, uh, calls for for the virtue of patience more than the other stages, let's put it that way. In the first stage, there's an awakening of faith, some intuition that there's something out there greater than your own personal problems and, and whatnot. Uh, and when people have this intuition, if they get it strongly, if it makes an impression on them, they usually then start investigating various teachings and paths and teachers. Uh, they go th- into the second stage. 
And then at some point after uh, shopping around, which is a very good thing to do, uh, it's important to uh, find a path, a teaching that you relate to, and to make a commitment to it. That's uh, the, the third stage, the unification of self, because instead of uh, your life being divided and going in many directions at once, the spiritual path becomes a priority in your life. And so your life sort of unifies around that priority and you make a commitment to actually do the practices and so forth. And then you get into the fourth stage, which uh, I call the purification of mind. It's really purification of mind and heart, but it usually begins with the mind. Uh, and this is where uh, patience really comes in. The purification of the mind, what does that mean? Briefly, it's uh, a purifying our minds of misperceptions about ourselves and the world. Uh, it's purifying ourselves of uh, selfish desires and attachments and of uh, harmful intentions and deeds. And for most people, the fourth stage on a spiritual path is the longest stage. <coughs> that immediately tells you why patience is necessary in this stage. Uh, it involves doing certain practices and in a persistent, committed way. Uh, Self-inquiry, constantly examining yourself, seeing what's going on, what's arising. It requires training and meditation, and this takes months, if not years, to become uh, a proficient meditator. It means keeping precepts and uh, keeping them in your daily life and observing your daily life and over and over again, uh, deepening your practice of keeping precepts and then practicing devotion to whatever uh, form the divine manifests in your life. Uh, so in other words, the, the fourth stage is where the real work begins here. Uh, sometimes it's painful because we have to face things about ourselves that we don't particularly like to face. Occasionally it's frightening because we have to face the realities of impermanence and death. But mostly it's boring. <laughs> That's true. A lot of times it's boring. It's like starting any journey. In the beginning you start a journey, you're planning for the journey, you're getting your tickets and so forth, and uh, you start off and you're all excited. But if it's a long journey overland, after the initial excitement wears off, it's, it can start to get quite boring. So... Uh, a lot of the practices end up being, uh, for a time anyway, like uh, if you're going to be a musician practicing scales on a piano, you know, da 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 over and over. You sit there in your meditation pillow, you watch your breath, you watch your breath, da 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 da. This stage then really requires patience to get through it. And it also teaches you patience. So both things happen together. If you're not a particularly patient person to begin with, and you stick with this, this will teach you patience. So let's try to be more specific about the areas in our life, uh, if we're on a spiritual path, where patience is necessary, uh, and then how can we culti cultivate it in those areas. The first thing we can look at are the situations we find ourselves in. Uh, the kind of worldly situations that develop, not necessarily specifically people, although sometimes they often include people, but I'm thinking of things like the kind of work you do. Uh, if you've been at your job for a long time, you can get very impatient with that. Uh, a lot of people get impatient when they get sick. And you get, uh, an illness comes, that just comes from, from the universe, gives this to you, and here's a situation you have to deal with, and people get very impatient with that. Uh, and patience expresses itself just in waiting. You have to wait for a bus or you have to wait in a doctor's office or, you know, some situation. You just have to sit there and wait. Uh, when I say uh, situations that cause impatience, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. But what in your life, what sort of situations cause you impatience? Yeah. I don't have anything that distracts me. I'm just, like, if I'm at work, you know, at the register, in my case, the register at Dally or whatever, and... There's nothing really going on. Boredom, that experience of, not necessarily boredom, but all of a sudden I don't have something to sort of focus on. Ah, okay, that's good. Distract me. That's, right. that's a kind of waiting. That's usually right, what happens waiting. when you're waiting for the bus. Right. You, you arrive, you're ready to go someplace. Right. and Looking for something to do, but, you know, maybe go eat some more, you know. Good. Whatever. Good one. Does that have, you work in a deli? Is that? Well, a, I work at the Kiva Health Food Store, so I do a number of different things. And so when I'm very absorbed in doing kind of my work, it's easy 
you know, you lose yourself easily, but when I'm just standing there, then... So there are periods that, that come up again and again in your day where this happens. Right, there's the spaciousness there that is uncomfortable, I guess. Good one. Anybody else? Well, it doesn't happen to me as much anymore as it used to, but I had, you know, earlier in the path, I was able to do the waiting, the patients. The part where I have suffering is when uh, I don't have adequate information, and I may be expected to do something, or I may not, or I may need to do something else. And it's the not knowing, and knowing that any moment I may be demanded to do something, that is difficult for me. That's very interesting. Uh, impatient because you don't know to get some information, or to impatient to find out what you're supposed to do next. Or Yes. Yeah, very good. Subtle. Yeah. I always feel like I'm impatiently waiting for God. Oh, we're going to get to that one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to talk about a situation, concrete situations, okay? Then we're going to get to this one. You're, you're jumping way ahead. A good one, though. Anyway, uh, these are good examples, though. Con you know, concrete examples. And this is what's important if you're going to cultivate patience, is to identify some recurrent situation that causes you to get impatient. So this is a wonderful one that you mentioned, Jeremy, like at your job. It's something that happens over and over. So you can start to identify, and you know it's going to happen frequently, so you're going to get a chance to practice. You're going to get a chance to cultivate patience in that situation. And then the, uh, you want to change your attitude about the situation and think of it as your teacher instead of something that you dread. You know, if you know that, I don't know, around 4 o'clock everything slows down or 5 o'clock people are at dinner or something, then you start looking forward to it. Say, oh, my teacher's coming up here, and so what can I learn? This is very important, by the way, in all the sorts of spiritual practices, that, especially ones you do in your everyday life, like precepts and stuff. Situations that before you, you tried to avoid, you now try to see as they're going to be your best teachers. So literally think of it as this is my teacher, a manifestation of my teacher. And then if you can, uh, you want to try to design some very specific preset for that situation. This is a place where you can get quite creative with precepts. We have here at the center 10 precepts we practice because they're generally situations that people have to face. But each of us have our uh, unique little... Uh, quirks. And so when you discover this, you can design a preset. And I'll give you one good example that is a precept for situations. And this was one that a student of mine several years ago came up with. We were talking about impatience and she was saying she was, you know, just always such an impatient person. She didn't know what to do about it. So I said, well, where does it specifically manifest? You know, where, do, where can you see it the most? And she said, well, for instance, driving, I drive around and I'm always impatient. I'm always trying to pass people or get through the light or go faster. And so she said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll take a precept to obey all traffic laws. If you're driving down the street and the sign says go 25 miles an hour, I'll go 25 miles an hour. I won't pass anybody in the city and I'll, I won't run red lights or all that. And she tried it for a while and she said it was really marvelous. It really, it, what it gave her an opportunity to do is to see what the source of her impatience was. And what the source was, she found that her mind, the minute she was driving, something you do automatically, her mind started, you know, turning around the future and started worrying about things and, and so forth. And when she physically slowed down her movement through the traffic, her mind slowed down and she could appreciate, you know, things like the weather and the uh, scenery like and the trees. It is. Yes, it is. These are all work on the same principle. So that's a wonderful situation. There was some specific area in which impatience manifested. She identified it, she took it as her teacher, and then she designed a little practice that would help her not get so impatient. And notice she, instead of what she used to do when she got impatient, was try to rush through it. And she now is doing the opposite. She's slowing everything down. So this is a, a, just an example, and each of you in your own lives perhaps can uh, you know look at your situation. I don't know quite what you do with that. Maybe you would take this opportunity to meditate, for instance. To, you know, everything slows down, you're at the cash register, or something like that. So maybe that's to say, ah, start watching your breath, or do a choiceless awareness meditation. Okay, then 
The other area in our lives that usually uh, are catalysts to generate our own impatience are other people. You know, your spouse, fellow workers, boss, or whatever. So what, is there a particular person in your life that, that you get impatient with? Fam- family members. Family members. <laughs> so I, I found personally, if I've, I've had some breakthroughs with that recently, but what's been nice about that, well, actually in two ways, is being more patient with myself and then being more, um, giving space to myself and giving space to my my, my parents. And Is your parents mostly? Yeah, family members right. and myself. If I'm somehow able to um, give space to those two situations, it automatically seems to cover the rest of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. How, how often do you see your parents? Um, five, six times a year. Yeah. So and parents are usually very good. I mean, either either both of them or at least one of them, we usually get very impatient with. At least that's been my experience. My mother used to just drive me nuts, uh, and specifically that sense of impatience. But one of the problems with parents is, unless you live in the same city and see them frequently, it's hard to practice with them. Anybody uh, at work? So you're nodding there. <laughs> yes, I think it's somebody that, yeah, sort of, I guess it's impatience. I'm not real pleased with work, working around her, and I try to avoid that. So, I once lived in a commune in San Francisco, and there was a guy who uh, did the dishes at about half the pace that I like to do the dishes, and sometimes we'd be teamed up, and I'd be anxious to get out of there and go someplace, you know what I mean? And he had... He was very methodical, you know, everything went like this. <laughs> yeah. I work with someone who's extremely impatient. Oh! <laughs> and uh, I work much slower, and I like to do one thing at a time, and uh, I can't do that. And I, But I find myself getting impatient with her after a while, sort of like it's contagious. And I do fine for a little while, and then I start getting impatient with her uh, being impatient. Oh, this is great. This it is... is. <laughs> it definitely causes suffering. <laughs> the feedback mechanism is interesting in relationships here. It's important to be able to, uh, again, identify a particular person that you get impatient with, if you're going to cultivate patience. Because what can you do about it? It's the same thing. Pick someone in your life, particularly that you get impatient with, to be your teacher and think of them as your teacher manifesting. And if you get impatient with a lot of people, don't try and do this with everybody all at once. Pick one person, the person that you uh, get impatient with the most, or, or if that's like your parents, you don't see them, somebody who's in your life frequently. Otherwise, you only get very uh, rare teachings. And if you want constant teachings, you want to pick somebody you have to deal with a lot. Yeah? I have a good example of that. Yeah. My sister just came to visit, and uh, she was here four or five days. And I always get impatient with her after the first couple of days because I've heard these stories a million times, you know. And uh, this time when she was coming, I prepared myself, and, and I thought, I'm going to let her be my teacher, and I'm going to really listen and pay attention to every story she tells, <laughs> no matter how many times she tells it. <laughs> and uh, we had the best visit we've ever had. I didn't get impatient the whole time. Uh, she never repeated any of her stories. <laughs> it was just wonderful. We had the most wonderful visit. It was great. Yeah. Um. That's a great example. This is also good because how specific it is. Not only is it the person, but then what specifically about the person makes you impatient. The more observant you can be about this and the more specific, the, the, the clearer the teaching will be for you. And it'll give you something to work with in a very uh, concrete way and rather than taking these virtues as just something general. Oh, I should just learn more patience. That usually doesn't do much good in people's lives. But if you can really pinpoint a situation or a person, then you can really start to transform that impatience. One example, uh, again, of uh, how to work with uh, 
being impatient with when you get impatient with a, a person is given in uh, by Satomi, who's a woman, a uh, Japanese woman who wrote a book called Passionate Journey. It's about her uh, journey to enlightenment in uh, the Zen tradition. And a lot of things happened to her on the way. But one particular incident, she was uh, at a Zen monastery and the Zen master gave her the job of being the assistant to his wife who was in charge of the kitchen. And apparently... Zen master's wife was a very difficult, scatterbrained sort of person. And she would say things to Satomi like, go down to the village and here's, I don't know, 10 yen, buy some tofu. No, no, don't buy tofu, buy some tempeh. No, don't buy tempeh, buy tofu. Well, you decide and send her off with 10 yen. So she would go down to the village and she'd think, well, I'll get half tofu and half tempeh. And she'd come back. And the Zen master's wife would say, you idiot, you don't buy half tofu and half tempeh, get either one or the other. She was never pleased with anything Satomi could do. And at first, Satomi was very upset about this situation and very impatient. And then she began to think, well, maybe this is a teaching here. And so then she began to uh, try to fill all the demands that this woman put on her. And she never could succeed so this was a marvelous teacher, but it brought up all her little attachments to doing things well, to being praised. All these things came up, and she got to see them and uh, start being able to release them. And years later, she wrote about, she says, I, I think of that woman now, and tears come to my eyes, because she was so grateful to have that opportunity to do this kind of practice. So here's a, a good example. It comes from the biography of a spiritual seeker, about taking very concrete everyday situations and how you can turn that into a practice for cultivating patience. Now, a difficult area, cultivating patience in respect to ourselves. That's a big, big uh, problem for a lot of people. They get impatient with themselves. So what makes you impatient? In that you were starting to talk about that with your family, for instance. What is it about yourself? Right. Well, I can give you a specific example, I guess. Um, <clears throat> me and my mom sort of have this resistant kind of relationship. Of course, we love each other a lot. But, and I think that I have a lot of qualities that my mom ha has. Um, and um, possibly qualities that aren't necessarily um, highly... Um, uh, reinforced being a male, let's say. Um, and so I've, I've been very impatient with my own qualities that are very much like my mother. And so I tended to project that onto her and be very impatient with her. And I found out that once I sort of accepted those in myself, then all of a sudden there was this big breakthrough between me and her. And so it sort of generalized. And that's can, you, can you name one of the qualities? Um, I, I guess this one quality that I tend to value myself is sort of being this very intellectual kind of this image of myself of being intellectual. There's this other part of me that's not intellectual. It's just very kind of like can say stupid things or not necessarily considered really intelligent or, you know, those types of things. And, and um, I tended to um, be impatient about those qualities in myself, you know. Good one. I've heard, yeah. I mean, a lot of people are impatient with uh, what comes out of their mouth. Like, right. Why did I say that stupid thing? Right. Why did right. I, why did I, right. that's, yeah, that's, right. that's, that's fairly common. Yeah. Right. Good. Yeah. Who else? I get impatient with my body. Ah. Illness and, and those kind of things. Uh-huh. I need to feel better. The donkey. The donkey, the donkey. won't cooperate. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of get impatient with not thinking of things to say. Like after, you know, somebody will say something and then I'll won't have a response and then later I'll think of, you know, I'll think of something and say, well, why didn't I... You know, why didn't I <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite of yeah. <laughs> blurting things out, <laughs> putting your foot in your mouth. This is uh, not having a foot to put in it. <laughs> <laughs> something like that anyway. <laughs> I get impatient with my judging mind and and cynical mind and all those things. Very good, especially spiritual seekers. If you're not a spiritual seeker, people don't usually get impatient with that. But once you get on a spiritual path and you know what spiritual perfection should be, at least you think you do, <laughs> yeah. then you get very impatient. Um, 
These are good examples. They're really good examples because, again, they're very concrete and specific. And sometimes you can feel a restlessness and impatience about yourself. Uh, but the, the, uh, to really be able to cultivate patience, you want to observe it and try to identify quite specifically. The more specific you can be in identifying that aspect of yourself or several aspects of yourself that make you impatient with yourself, the better chance then you have of actually working with them. And uh, what I would suggest again, it's like with people, if you want to start with this, start with one aspect of yourself at a time. Find something about yourself that makes you impatient. Your body might be a good one. That's a nice, clear one. Do you know what I mean? And then once you've identified it, once you've observed and you can clearly identify it, then you want to treat that as a suffering being. Just the way you would, uh, if you're practicing cultivating compassion, uh, you look around and you see a suffering animal, let's say, a, you know, a cat that's sick or something. You want to treat that aspect of yourself as a suffering being. You want to see it arises in, in consciousness, just like some other suffering being, and it is suffering. So, you know, when you think of something clever to say after the fact, and then you get a, a part of you gets impatient with that and thinks, oh, why didn't I think of it then? You know, what's the matter with me? recognize that that it's a character in your mind who's saying, I'm hurting, I'm suffering, do you see? If you can really see it as a suffering being, it will evoke a compassionate response. You mentioned uh, unruly mind in meditation, and this, I think, is quite common with meditators. After a while, after in their practice, practicing six months, you expect to have a perfectly clear, crystal clear mind, and you find your mind still generates thoughts, and some days... You're sitting in your pillow and your mind is like, uh, just like the first day you started. It doesn't seem to be, uh, have had any effect. So what you could do, let's say in that situation, as an example, think of that mind as a suffering being, or in this case, you might say a immature being, uh, like a child that has to, isn't getting it, isn't learning. And I've used this analogy before, but it's a very good one. You can think of that mind, for instance, like a little puppy dog. And if you want to train a puppy dog to sit, you know, puppy dogs are all distracted and they're very impatient and they're restless. And you have to be firm, but gentle and very patient. And you tell the puppy dog, sit, and you push its behind down so it gets it. And you have to go over and over this. And gradually, the puppy dog will learn to sit and will usually, if it's a good dog, like to sit, like working with you once it understands what it's wanted and so forth. The trick here is to, in a certain sense, objectify that part of yourself and establish a relationship with that part of yourself, just the way you would with a puppy dog in that case. When we identify with the self we're loving, we're in trouble. But when we can see the self that we're loving as a suffering being, just like any other suffering being, then we can respond to it with compassion in a selfless way, rather than a way that reinforces that self. Yeah. Do you think that, in you know, some sense, a dualism is created between almost that objectified being, that suffering being, almost tends to take, seemingly take on a will of its own, and then you have a will, like a spiritual will or seeking will, of wanting the quiet mind, and all of a sudden there's this mind that doesn't want to be quiet, and all of a sudden you have two seemingly two wills pitted up against each other, and then there's the resistance between the two of them. That's right. So if you get into a battle, you're, you're going to have a lot of suffering. Somehow kind of aligning that or some... See, the point is, people, this happens. It's happening in you. You're in self-conflict. That is what's going on. Much better to recognize this duality occurring than to pretend that it isn't. Once you can clearly recognize it, then you can work with it. And ultimately, you can see that there is no duality here, because ultimately, you can see there is no actual division. Do you know what I mean? But in the meantime, what you're doing, really, is applying skillful means to work with a situation that's already given. You accept it. Rather than refusing to accept that unruly mind, right? That's going on in the moment. Getting to a big battle with it, trying to repress it, trying to shove it away, trying to, uh, you know, through a force of command, make it shut up. If you start working with a puppy dog like that, you know, start beating it and all that, you might eventually get an obedient puppy dog, but it will not be a happy puppy dog. There'll be no joy in your relationship with it, you know. 
So, um, what, what is the most compassionate thing to do in that situation? Maybe, um, uh, give a little more space to that unruly mind. You know, sometimes you, if you've kept a puppy dog locked up all day, you let it out to run, it runs all around until it finally exhausts itself and starts to settle down on its own, you know? This is where you have to be creative. Once you recognize this is a suffering being here, then what do you do? But you approach it from the point of view of compassion, is what I'm saying. Okay, so that situations, other people, and oneself, all areas that have the potential to create impatience in us, they're, they're really catalysts, the impatience is in us, but they bring it out. And then the fourth one is cultivating uh, patience with respect to the path itself. And of course, this doesn't arise for people who aren't on a spiritual path, but if you get on a spiritual path, um, you can get very impatient with the path and in two major ways. The first one is you can get very impatient with the practices. We just talked about uh, meditating and how you can get impatient with meditating, an unruly mind. Anything else that anybody gets impatient with in terms of the doing practices? I get impatient with reading the same thing over and over from all these mystics. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it's good to quit reading for a while, it really is. Just impatient when you know better in your head and your body goes ahead and does it anyway. You go ahead and uh, break a precept even though you know better or whatever. A lot of people get impatient with the same attachments come up. They think they've um, dealt with some attachment, gotten rid of it, and then it comes up again. And they often, as Therese said, these things often sneak up on you. You're not really aware of it until they're there, and then you get all impatient. You're impatient with yourself, but you're also impatient with the practice that it isn't working. Uh, I think this is particularly true of modern Westerners, that we're uh, very impatient with practices generally because our whole culture is based on, geared towards getting quick results, you know. And there's, what, what's that? There's one jingle for a, some sort of pain reliever that says, relief is just a swallow away. <laughs> But really, if you just listen to our, our television ads, they, they reflect the, this tremendous impatience in our culture for, to get results now, get relief now, end suffering now, 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 now. And now we bring this over to our spiritual practice because, you know, we grew up on this. We're conditioned by it, whether we like to be or not. Uh, all these things, busy mind and meditation. You know, you meditate for a month and don't know why your mind isn't, you know, like a, Smooth lake, or you vowed never to lie again. You find yourself, you know, your mouth's speaking, even though your mind is saying, "I shouldn't tell this little white lie." But they're, they're, the mouth has already got the words <laughs> zooming through the air. And then people in our culture have uh, usually two reactions to this. Uh, one is to quit, which obviously isn't very skillful. I mean, from a spiritual point of view, anyway. <laughs> but it's true, apparently, and I've heard this from. Uh, uh, the grapevine from Tibetan teachers or Indian teachers who come here and they say that Americans have a tremendous enthusiasm, very curious, but one of their problems is they get impatient and they get bored quickly and they quit and they move on to something else. Um, but another reaction is to uh, work harder. So the harder you work, the faster you're going to get results. And this, again, we pick up from our culture, you know, that you work hard, you'll get there uh, more quickly. And in a certain sense, that can be a good motivation if it means that you're going to um, do more in, in terms of outward practice. For instance, if you're having an unruly mind and, you're only, and you've only been meditating once a day, it's better if you can meditate twice a day. It usually will help to settle the mind. So if, that, if you find you're getting impatient with an unruly mind uh, and you can meditate twice a day, you know, that, uh, add that extra outward practice into your life, that would be a good thing. But generally speaking, that isn't really the solution to our impatience with practice because it's not really the heart of the problem of our impatience. And so uh, if you add another meditation and you bring impatience into that meditation, you can actually compound the problem. The heart of the problem is we are, have this attachment to results. 
And this is true in all cultures. This is why the Bhagavad Gita has this great teaching. You're right to the action, but not to the fruit of the action, the result of the action. It's a, it's a uh, fundamental teaching in all traditions. But I think we, in this culture, have it, this attachment, stronger than most cultures. And uh, if you, at a certain point, if you continue to be more and more impatient because you're not getting results and you try to work harder and harder, it can backfire on you. And there's a nice little Zen story that exemplifies this about a uh, the son of a samurai who had no interest in sword fighting. The son had no interest in sword fighting. And at a fairly young age, his, in his teens, I guess, his father was killed in a dastardly fashion, murdered, you know. So his son decided he had to avenge his father, but he was murdered by a, a master swordsman samurai. So the son decides he'll have to learn to become a master swordsman himself. So he seeks out a teacher, and he finds one of these old, uh, you know, Zen sword-fighting masters in some little hut on a mountain. They always live up on a hut on a mountain. <laughs> and he says to him, you know, I, I have to become the greatest swordsman in Japan. Um, how long will it take? And the master says, oh, it'll probably take about... Uh, uh, 10 years or so. And he says, but I'll, I'll work tri- twice as hard. I'll come here and I'll live with you and I'll really uh, commit myself to this totally. <laughs> and the guy says, oh, it'll, well, it'll probably take about uh, eight years or so. And he says, that's still too long. I- I'll work even harder. How long would it take? And he says, well, then it'll take about 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's, it's calling attention to this point that you can overdo it, especially in a spiritual practice. Kenneth Roshi, who was a uh, Canadian, was she, or British originally? British. British woman who studied Zen in Japan and is now a Roshi, and she lives in this country and has a Sangha. She says everybody has their own spiritual speed that they go. Some people go 45 miles an hour. Some people go 55 miles an hour. Some people go 65 miles an hour. And the important thing is to find your spiritual speed and then stick with it. Now, it is true, and sometimes on a spiritual path, uh, you, you go faster and, you know, for a while, then you slow down for a while. But the point is to be as steady as possible. You know, it's like driving on the freeway. You want to find a nice, uh, steady speed. You want to be going erratically. That steadiness, uh, and that perseverance in the, in the practice is ultimately what pays off, if we want to speak in a relative sense. It's not the these bursts of effort and whatnot, and they, those often just produce more impatience and, um, especially in terms of the mind, more confusion, more thought, and whatnot. So then, uh, we also often get impatient with God. Anybody else ever been impatient with God, or impatient for enlightenment, or impatient for truth, or? Well, I had different, uh, I'm trying to think of the specific experience. I do recall this, that uh, I had learned, you know, I surmounted something. I can't remember what the the thing was. And God brings the situation up again. Okay, God, if you want to waste my time doing (laughs) that, it's up to you. And it's similar to, you know, like like maybe having a a tire blowout or these, these kinds of things that just... Uh, first God wants you to go do this and then blows out your tire so you can't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that sort of thing. I find there's an impatience with God bringing up these things that, that contradict. And so then I just throw it up. Your agenda, right. You contradict your agenda. This is a very good example. And this is an example when you start to see everything as a teacher, in a certain sense as God manifesting as a teacher. Uh, then your only recourse is to God, you know, like Job. Uh, and this is, and, but no, this is actually quite a healthy way to, to do it. What she's really saying is recognizing the impatience, but okay, God, if you want to waste my time and, uh, do this again, there's an acceptance in that as well. And to have this sort of dialogue with God is very helpful, not for God. I mean, God knows everything anyway, but very helpful for you because it brings out the things in you, really. That's the, the spiritual uh, value of having this, carrying on this sort of dialogue. And especially if you have a very free, um, open dialogue with God, you'll be surprised at what comes out of you. And often attachments or, you know, things that will come out, uh, will come up that you weren't really aware of, you know. Uh, and it, and through working through that dialogue, you can come to uh, acceptance of the situation. And then, 
Your reaction to having a tire blow out is impatient. You have this thing with God. Okay, I'll accept it. You turn your attention back to the tire, and there may be something more to see in the tire. And you may then say, well, thank you, God. You were right, you know. It's important to remember, again, this business of the timing on a path. Uh, generally speaking, people move through certain uh, overall stages of a path. That's why we, you know, can talk about them. But everybody, in terms of the details of how their path unfolds, is very unique. And uh, especially when it comes to this business of uh, how long it's going to take somebody to get enlightened to reach the end of the path. Uh, the two extremes that I know of are Ramana Maharshi, who took about 15 minutes, I think, maybe half an hour or something, and to Dr. Wolf, one of my teachers, whose path took 29 years. Uh, and then, of course, from if you look at it from an Eastern point of view, a path can take many lifetimes to unfold. And most traditions have some uh, sense that we're really like fruit, and we ripen on the tree. And before the fruit is ripe, it is not going to fall. That's all there is to it. You know what I mean? And uh, if you turn it off prematurely, it's unedible. It's no good. And the moment the fruit is totally ripe, it'll fall of itself. Never just rots on the tree. Never rots on the tree. <laughs> At least it shouldn't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe a fruit farmer would tell you different. Uh, but when it's ready, it falls. Then nobody has to come along and beat it with a stick or anything like that. Uh, unfortunately, the way fruit is sold and marketed today, they do pick it prematurely, and that's what tastes rotten in the in the supermarket. But in terms of nature, this is true. It just it happens on its own, and it's a beautiful image for how the path uh, uh, blossoms on its own. Uh, Jesus talked about it's like a uh, woman kneading uh, yeast into dough. And she needs it in, she puts it aside, and it rises on its own. There's a whole aspect of the spiritual path which you do not control. And this is um, uh, often expressed in most traditions as grace. Enlightenment comes by the grace of God, or in the Hinduism's the grace of the guru. And the Buddhists don't use this term grace, but they, have the, uh, they talk about it as uh, happening spontaneously. Enlightenment is nothing that can be attained by human hands. It cannot be made to happen through some self-will. So there's this mysterious other uh, quality that's entering into this. And people can get impatient with God because they don't feel they're getting the grace. It may not just be enlightenment, it may be consolations and stuff. And maybe you go along through a period of your time and you're having blissful experiences and you're feeling peaceful and then all that dries up. And you have a, a, a desert experience, you go through periods of aridity. And then you get impatient with God because uh, God has withdrawn these graces. And it comes from a fundamental misconception about what really grace is. We tend to think of grace as a reward for effort. If you're a good boy and girl, or girl, and you do your practices, and you meditate, and you follow the precepts, then after a while, uh, God's going to recognize this and say, okay, uh, now I'm going to give you your grace. You know, just like if you do your homework, you'll get a gold star or something when you're in elementary school. This is not what grace is at all. And there's a wonderful story about Ramana Maharshi that illustrates this. Ramana Maharshi was a, well, a, a guru of this century, but a, a very much in a traditional mode and uh, in India. And people would come to the ashram, and they'd be around for a while, and they'd be doing these practices, and they'd come and complain to him that they weren't getting his grace. When are you going to give me your grace? You know, I've been here five years and so forth. And he would explain to them, he'd say, uh, there is no special time for giving the Guru's grace. The Guru's grace is always available. It's always there. Grace is the very nature of the divine. And in fact, if we saw things truly, we would see that the whole world is grace. Everything is grace. In this moment, arising, all our problems are grace. Even our impatience is a form of grace. We just don't recognize it. So grace isn't something that someone else gives to you. Grace is fundamental spiritual energy of this moment, the creative energy that produces everything. 
And when we get impatient, because we haven't gotten enlightened yet or haven't found the truth yet or whatever, we are moving away from the very place that grace is. Again, where? Right in this moment. Here is the grace. And so, in the case of Ramana Maharshi's students, they're looking to the future. They're waiting for the guru to give them grace. And this is a form of impatience, which is actually distracting them from the only true source of grace, which is right here in this very, very moment. So, when you start to get impatient, uh, and when you start to think, I have to find the truth quickly, that's fine. That motivation is a, is a good motivation. This is what suffering does. Suffering drives you to seek the truth. And you want to be a truth seeker and you want to have it a priority in your life. But ask yourself, where am I looking? You're not going to find it here by coming to this meeting. You're not going to find it on retreat. You're only going to find it now. That doesn't mean you shouldn't come to the meetings and shouldn't go on retreats. <laughs> but you're only going to find it now. So the minute that impatience arises, if you can feel that the impatience is driving you away from the grace, from the truth, let it go and look in the moment, right now. You don't even have to get out of bed, huh? You don't have to get out of bed. You really don't. <laughs> That's exactly where my gnosis happened, in fact, right in bed. <laughs> so the fourth stage of the path, as I said earlier, requires us to, uh, requires patience to get through it, but it also teaches us patience. And really, in a certain sense, you could say that's the big thing that the fourth stage has to teach you. Uh, you start cultivating patience in all these situations, uh, these areas of your life, uh, with other people, with uh, situations, with yourself, in relation to your practice. And as you begin to have more patience and less impatience, you begin to what? Settle down. You are naturally more present right here in this moment. And really when you become particularly with your practices and with God, when you become uh, really patient, really accepting of them, really understanding that there's, yes, you have to put in a certain effort to keep them going and all that, but there's not much more you can do. Really uh, understanding how actually little you do on a spiritual path. You sort of just show up, you know, and, and uh, something else happens, something else takes over. This is uh, the beginning of the end of the whole stage of purification, and the big lesson you've learned is patience, just to be patient. And when you've really learned this lesson, it brings the fourth stage to a close, and it really inaugurates the next stage of the spiritual path, which is the illumination of the heart, which is a much more fun stage. <laughs> <laughs> St. John of the Cross calls purification, his term for it is the dark night of the senses, and this is what, how he describes it. Softened and humbled by aridities and hardships in which God exercises the soul in the course of this night, individuals become meek toward God and themselves and also towards their neighbor. As a result, they will no longer become impatiently angry with themselves or with their faults or with their neighbor's faults. Neither are they displeased with God for not making them perfect quickly. This is a really big turning point because when you stop being impatient with yourself, with God, with situations, wanting to get over them, wanting to get through them, wanting to move on, when you really settle into them is when you begin to see that all that happens, whether it's good or bad, is a result of this grace uh, and is an opportunity for practice. So you no longer are thinking that the unruly mind is an obstacle to your practice. The unruly mind in meditation becomes an opportunity for practice. Everything becomes an opportunity for practice. And when that happens, when you really start to experience that, then uh, what that calls forth is gratitude. And gratitude is the virtue associated with the next stage of the spiritual path, which we will discuss next month. So are there any uh, last comments or questions? Well, the thing that I 
learned with less resistance in my life and seeing things as opportunities and kind of what you're talking about <clears throat> is that using that analogy hanging on the tree i can be happy hanging on the tree basically is what i'm allowing and i think there's part part of me had resistance to that you know the conditioning or whatever that i somehow needed to to uh be perfect before i could be happy not realizing that there, there's there's a lot of joy um dropping some of that resistance and seeing the opportunity there's a lot of joy in the whole process and so that's been really powerful in my life just because i like being joyful so yeah it's certainly true on a spiritual path there's a tremendous amount of freedom and joy uh you know to be uh had to or to be discovered i should say uh short of enlightenment and actually when you start thinking about enlightenment you get to this paradox the paradox is as long as you want enlightenment you can't have it. And suddenly when you, in a certain sense, uh, give that last desire up, surrender that last personal attachment, uh, the attachment to the idea of enlightenment and so forth, that the fruit falls. But this interesting, when you, we use this analogy of the fruit ripening, because our own minds uh, read into that situation some high point. In other words, here's the seed. The seed gets planted. The tree grows. Uh, the tree produces fruit. The fruit ripens. The fruit falls. The seed gets planted. And the tree grows. That's the whole cycle. Now, we come along and we say, ah, the great moment is when the fruit falls. But th the seed is fine the way it is. Do you know what I mean? The little seedling tree is perfect the way it is. The fruit that's ripening on the vine is perfect the way it is. Enlightenment is really to see that it's all perfect. There's nothing special about the fruit falling. Each moment is a part of the unfolding. The tree isn't really going anywhere, you know? The tree isn't trying to get some result or produce some result. It's just dancing. From our point of view, we're interested in the fruit because that's what we can eat. But that's not really the way the world is. That's just our selfish view of it. He, he had his hand up before. <coughs> I have a friend who's a perfectionist, and her father was a perfectionist, and she could never quite be perfect enough. Thought, and she got herself into where uh, just everything was imperfect. You know, she her and uh, whatever she would make perfect, her sense of detail would look closer and see the imperfection, and just suffering tremendously. And uh, she decided to change your point of view and that uh, this desire for perfection was like a lineage transmission from her father and she was just being unskillful and so she started to see where she could apply that and where she should let it go and instead of being uh, angry all the time and impatient she's starting to feel gratitude in situations where she used to feel angry it's often a change of attitude changes the whole practice. So it's the same practice, but if you can look at the situation differently, if you look at uh, impatience as an obstacle that you have to get rid of or overcome, eventually it creates this feedback mechanism the same way. You get more and more impatient. But if you start to see it's an opportunity to cultivate patience, then you work with it. And only it's, it's just, it's like one of those gestalt, you know, shifts, those visual gestalt shifts. Very powerful when that happens. That's what insight is, by the way. That is a good... Um, example of a non-conceptual, not an intellectual insight. It's just something that occurs to you. Oh, and something shifts. I was going to... No, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> I think what I was describing might be called intense longing. I don't know if that's impatient or not, but I... I, uh, I think that I've heard, you know, numerous warnings from the mystics that the human incarnation is... is uh, a precious opportunity and not to waste it, mm -hmm. not to waste any day or any moment. And that's where the alarm comes in for me, that, um, that urgency that every moment I might be wasting. And uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's impatience or not. It's 
if you are longing, that's not wasting. Wasting is not longing. I mean, the longing itself is the practice in that sense. A devotional practice. That is the practice. So you're not wasting one moment. So leave the rest up to God. Because you can't do anything well, about that anyway. It's not something you have to um, practice or cultivate. It's just a spontaneous, ongoing thing that... Well, it, ha- it yes, for, and it happens in different ways for different people on a path. Some people have, uh, they wouldn't say a longing for God, but a longing for truth. Dr. Wolf had a you know, passion for truth. So in one form or another, you have to have this this kind of passion. It may not be a great emotional, devotional passion, but this sense of commitment... And this is the priority in your life. This is the most important thing. That's the stage of unification of self. See, that's the tricky one. You don't want to, you don't want to dampen the passion here, the energy that's driving you. But it's something in, in the misperception of what's going on right now that causes the suffering. Mm-hmm. Not the fact that something hasn't happened. Something has happened, is happening. So then examine that. The answer to all our spiritual questions are found before we ask the question. Where did the question come from is where the answer to that lies. Not in some future response to the answer to the question. So who's longing? The longing, yes. Where does the longing arise from? That's very good. I have, this might be helpful to this, um, something that's really helped me. My dad sort of helped trigger this because we were talking about the words shoulds and kind of these ideas. Um, <clears throat> and I've noticed by paying attention, like I like to paint and I even like to write and do stuff like that. Um, and I even like to meditate, except I find there's resistance there too. Um, and a lot of it is I noticed this sort of super ego parent dialogue in my head oh you should be painting or you should be meditating and then all of a sudden i i sense this resistance to that almost like the adolescent resisting the parent going you know i don't want to do that you know if, if someone's telling me to do that i definitely don't want to do it you know of course but i'm creating this all in my own in my own head and so instead of instead of thinking of it that way sort of thinking of it as an opportunity and when i started to i would make the shift um sort of transmute it a little bit by seeing, uh, instead of going to meditate or paint to become free or joyful, I, I, um, and, and seeing the lack there, I, I'll, I'll see, I'll sort of, you know, through creative imagery or remembrance or whatever is, 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 is sense the joy and freedom in that. So instead of meditating to become this, I go there with that sort of mindset already of, or, or the, the idea that there's a lot of freedom and joy already in that, instead of this sort of cause and effect. Thing. So it's sort of, you know, that's placing I, it before it instead of sort of trying to get it. You know? Right. And that's good as long as, as you don't get discouraged when it doesn't happen. You right. sit down to meditate right. and those constellations right. aren't there. Do you know what I mean? Right. But really looking at uh, keeping what um, Suzuki Roshi called that beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. Where, oh, what's this going to be like right now? Not, I'm going to meditate, you know, this is my, like you're logging hours in the, in flying so you can get your pilot's license, you know, this is going to be my 108th hour here meditating. Uh, so that's a much better way of looking at it. Right. But it's also, this is why it's very helpful to establish a, dis- a discipline in your life. Uh, let's say a meditation discipline where you do it every day at a certain time or whatever. You choose the discipline. I mean, if you're especially alone, you're not in a community. You choose it and then you stick with it. And that what the discipline does is helps you cut through the this slavery to your likes and dislikes and this battle that goes on all the time in your mind. I should do it, but I don't want to do it and all that. If you have the discipline, then it doesn't matter whether you want to do it or don't want to do it, you do it. What about the idea of the unification of that commitment? Like, I sort of see myself as sort of split as sort of, again, like the superego should, like I should be doing this. All my mystic parents have been telling me I should be doing this in my, you know, kind of that idea. One way to put it is your part in, in this is you're always getting a call, a call to, to return to the source, you know, and 
Our part in it is to say yes. And by the way, we're going to go back to the source whether we like it or not. You know, We're going to be dragged back. I mean, that's what death's all about. So our choice is to say yes or not. Whether we go kicking or screaming or not. <laughs> the whole secret. The whole secret of life. Are you going to say yes to life or are you going to let life drag you around? You know, I like to put it in terms of a dance floor, you know, <laughs> God comes and invites you to dance. You can graciously say yes and go dance or it doesn't matter if you say no, God's still going to grab you and take you around the floor. You're going to be miserable struggling with God. Say, I don't want to dance and this and that. You don't have any choice in that. If you say yes, this very same activity moving around the floor, which was Tremendous suffering, if you're resisting and hating it, now becomes beautiful and graceful and an expression of joy. So this is the only only real choice we have in life. Yes or no? I'm saying yes, but I'm still fighting and struggling. <laughs> well, oh, be more specific. <laughs> well, it just feels like, you know, you want to surrender to this, but, you know, it just doesn't seem to... Well, it sounds easy. Isn't it? You know, it sounds like, oh, yeah, just say yes. But. Uh, yeah, it's very simple. It's not easy. It sounds simple. Okay. It is simple. It's not easy. No, you're right. It's not easy. It's simple. The principle is simple. It's very, very simple. Why but, is it so hard? Then? Well, because we have all these conditionings and da-da-da, and, you know, superegos running around in our brains, <laughs> or however you want to think about it. I mean, uh, so it is. But, you know, again, that is also... Uh, part of the, the uh, adventure of it. You know, the only adventures worth having are adventures that are full of risks and dangers and all that. Let's say I'm going to some third world country in Africa. Let's say I'm going to Kenya, right? There's no adventure flying to Kenya and checking into the Hilton at the airport. <laughs> There's no risk there. You know, they, they've got all the bottled water for you and they've purified everything and they know how to take care of Westerners. And You're going to be totally safe. But there's no adventure in that. If you go out into the bush now on a safari, you know, there are poisonous snakes and there are rhinos and all sorts of things. But that's an adventure worth having. It's not worth going to Kenya to check into the Hilton. Okay. So again, you see, if you, if you can start to look at it that way, instead of why all these problems, why all this resistance, you know, why is it so difficult, start to look at it as a, adventure. Yeah, a big adventure, then you start to welcome the difficulties. Oh, here comes the rhino. <laughs> right? Okay, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. Welcome to stay and have tea. Check out the library, and I'll see uh, some of you anyway next week. Oh, yes, next week is the uh, video, the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Very good one.